Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I'm Stefano Bini. In this series, we're bringing you the audio files from DocSF Venture 2023, held in January, just before the start of JP Morgan. In this episode, we'll hear from three venture capitalists about their vision for venture capital investments over the next two years. Again, this was recorded in January, and there may be some recent events that could have changed their outlook, but we feel that the general trends that they outlined adventure with Nancy Lynch will hold. Please welcome them to the DocSF stage 2023. Happy to have you guys here, but it's not gonna be easy because <laughs> I think you guys have some <laughs> answers you need to be providing us. First of all, I have three venture capitalists up here. I've got Zach Scott, Rashida Sinna, and Greg Gun- Grunberg. I want each of them to very briefly introduce themselves. Tell me your fund size, what checks you guys like to write, and maybe what is your interest in the health tech space? Zach. So hello, uh, my name is Zach Scott. I'm a general partner at Norwest Venture Partners, which is a Bay Area venture capital firm, actually one of the older venture capital firms in the United States. I recently just joined them, although I've been in healthcare venture for about 20 years. We're currently investing out of our 16th fund, which is a $3 billion fund. About 25 to 30% of that is dedicated to healthcare. Broadly across healthcare, we invest across all sectors and have both a venture and a growth equity arm. And so my main areas of focus are medical devices, diagnostics, and on the health tech side, mostly what I call pharma-centric digital health. So everything from real-world evidence to digital therapies, mostly in combination with another therapy to assist and our typical check size is 25 to $35 million, but it ranges broadly on the first check and then obviously back to the Hey, everyone. My name is Rachida Sinham. I'm a general partner with Aviate Ventures, which is an early stage fund that we started in 2018. We have two funds under management. Total assets under management is $400 million. We invest in, broadly speaking, applications of AI and data across industries. So we are a horizontal fund investing in enterprise tech, healthcare, and fintech and shortech. So I lead the healthcare side. Within healthcare, we are interested in both the life sciences side as well as health tech and services, focused on technology and platform and service models that need on cost, quality, or access of care. So we have looked at them as case space in particular a number of times. Don't have a dedicated investment yet but I was involved with Mamara in my priority fund, so I have seen their journey into MSK. Yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Grunberg. I'm with Longitude Capital. Longitude Capital is a healthcare-only venture growth firm. We invest in biotech, medtech, and other health solutions practice, which represents about a third of our investments. We have a $585 million fund, $2 billion under management, and our average investment size is in that 25 to $35 million range. We do have a few things between our med tech and our health solutions portfolio that have some relevance here. We've talked about some of the key words, but utilization management, tech-enabled devices, wireless technologies that help in the operating suite, and staffing technologies, just to name a few. So that's great. I can exactly. No, okay. I know I'm next. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. You get prepared because like, here I'm, I'm coming at you. We're on the clock. So you saw my slides and the thing that really struck me in the first section when I saw the Silicon Valley report on the Silicon Valley Bank report on Friday 
was that venture capitalists seem to be pulling some money in. I realized 2021 was a bigger year, but 2022, you still brought in more than you brought in 2020. And I don't mean you, I just mean venture capital in general. And yet we're seeing a drop in the number of deals that are being funded. So you guys got some explaining to do. What's going on? I'll start here. I'm sure my colleagues have other comments. I mean, I think there's a confluence of factors going on there. I mean, the obvious one is that there's a little, just like in company world, raising a fund takes a while. So there's a lag in the capital and in that reporting. But I think more importantly, we're coming out of a period, I mean, really a decade of the most permissive monetary policy that we've ever had. And then combine that with significant amount of infusion that was put into the economy during the COVID crisis that created a very permissive financing environment where valuations went a little bit ahead of their skis, so to speak. And so while the capital, the venture capitalists have the capital of the day, what I'm, the phenomenon I'm seeing, I'm sure you guys saw it too, is they're focusing on the investments they made in 2020 and 2021, ensuring those up and waiting to deploy it in new deals and kind of waiting for the market to correct back down to where valuations are more normalized is the overall pattern I'm seeing. Yeah, I completely agree. Just to add to that, I would say health tech as a whole, somewhat of a relatively new category in the sense that we don't have enough public companies that give us feedback that venture capitalists need to make new investments. And so a lot of those companies went public in the last couple of years. And that's when we first started seeing the data. And there were a lot of gaps that we that the public saw in those companies and their operating models. And so as a result, I think that impacted all the downstream investing. So that's point number one. Point number two is I think when markets are good, they're the shifting that investment tends to shift to more of a momentum type of investment where people want to put money into companies that are already growing and scaling so that they can get quick return on their money and those companies eventually go public. When the public markets didn't get that feedback and the public markets closed, that momentum money dried up, right? And they retreated. Yeah, I also think there's a dynamic where a number of companies raise capital and in shifting economic environments, they're behind plan. And when a company's behind plan, they say, let's not fundraise for a little while, or let's try to do a Series B extension, or how do we stretch capital? So you have a dynamic when and we're all in the same pond, so to speak. So when companies are more cautious to raise, when they're less confident about their milestones, it creates an environment where investors also are more cautious about deploying into those companies. You have valuation mismatch of expectations. You've got lack of clarity in the public markets, as Rashida pointed out. I thought it was the explosion in health tech that you mentioned in 2022 is a relevant point. I mean, it is a very nascent industry and not all the business models are proving out to be good business models. Direct-to-consumer model resonated a ton during the pandemic because there was no other way to access things. But when we got back to normal, that direct-to-consumer model, which was challenged even in the good times, is more challenged. So I don't know, I kind of described 2021 and 2022 as the Cambrian explosion in health tech. And now we're going to kind of go through the natural selection process. It doesn't mean that you die, but people either pivot or there'll be some interesting combination opportunities. Great. So I'm going to move to another topic. Thank you for those explanations. The next topic that I want to talk about, it it struck me in, again, going back to my data, no big surprise here that so many of the tech investments that are taking place in musculoskeletal and outside musculoskeletal, so many of them are really focused on rehab, non-operative care of patients. And I said to you guys the other day on the phone, I feel like in case people in this room don't know this, there's been a land wrap going on for a while for the control of the musculoskeletal care patient. 
huge spend, but, and everybody wants a part of that. And everybody wants, we've talked a little bit about cost avoidance as well. So my question to you guys is what sort of technologies are interesting you? What about this space interests you as a venture capitalist in the non-operative, and it doesn't have to be orthopedics, just the non-surgical care of patients? So I think one of the things, a lot of the money, as we saw, has been going into rehab, right, in the digital side of MSK. I think where we don't have a ton of clarity in the area that really interests me is where exactly in the patient journey do you capture a patient to change the outcome? And is it when a patient goes to their primary care physician with a complaint of back pain? Is it when they take their first biologic or drug, or is it when they see the orthopedic surgeon, right? Where do you intervene so that you can change the outcome and lead to lower costs, right? So that, what I broadly call patient navigation, and where do you navigate, where do you catch the patients so that you can navigate them appropriately is very interesting to me personally. And then the second area where we already made an investment is something where I don't think we tend to think of that as an MSK investment, but we have a portfolio company that uses computer vision to prevent injuries in factories, right? It's not a healthcare investment. It's not an MSK investment, but it has implications downstream. We have a particular portfolio company that's, we talked about utilization management, not the sexiest word, but when I think about value-based care in orthopedics, I really just think about what's the right care, right? And so if you have excessive spend, if you have unnecessary procedures, value-based care is effectively the right care. So this is an AI-enabled digital prior authorization company that integrates clinical evidence, data from the EMR, payer reimbursement policy, all into a full suite system that allows the provider, the patient, and the payer to effectively agree in advance on the course of care for the patient, evidence-based. MSK is a huge component of the business because one, there are so many of these procedures. Two, the decisions that you have to make are very consequential and early in the care pathway for these patients. So that's one particular example we're excited about. And I do think AI is very central to workflow and automation as you address some of the cost issues in MSK. I totally agree. I mean, we spent a ton of time on kind of workflow optimization, more like tech-enabled services. This is a kind of this blend or cross between health tech. But the other area where we've been spending a lot of time thinking and focusing on is kind of, is your channel partner. A lot of the health tech companies like Omada, which I, we're involved, are more focused on the payer, which is an interesting model more profitable than direct-to-consumer typically, but we've looked at some businesses that have actually partnered with more traditional medical products companies, whether that's a device company or a, a, a biotherapeutic company, and that's got some attractive features to it. One, uh, particularly if you're tied with them, you go through the regulatory pathway, you're creating a barrier which doesn't always exist in health tech, which has been a challenge. Two, if you do it right, they pay for most of it, and three, you don't have to spend on the commercial efforts to sell it because at least if you do the deal right, you're kind of clipping coupons when they sell the drug or the device and you're just getting a piece of it. It's a much more attractive capital efficient model. You've got to pick the right therapeutic areas, but we've looked at a couple of those models recently that we like. Just one follow-on question about this topic, I guess more about digital technologies and investing in them. In the last panel, there was reference to less regulatory risk in the digital health space. Any, I mean, you guys are risk mitigators. That's what you do. Any comments on risk in the health tech space relative to, say, the traditional medical devices? 
I would offer, I think, one of the responses, it's a big space. And I think that is part of the answer. I mean, there are a number of companies, a couple of them public, not necessarily MSK, that got caught through a multi-year regulatory battle trying to get their digital therapeutics approved as the FDA tried to figure out what its policies were. And they did that all in the spirit of hopefully becoming a digital sort of prescription, right? And then the big question is, was it worth it, right? Because you don't have to go through the FDA channels to have a digital solution and you could get an employer to pay for it. So I think that's one bigger complexity. In the surgical environment, we do see a lot of companies, particularly visual mapping companies, companies that help point the patient to the right procedure, which is a value-based care initiative. That FDA credential can also allow you for an NTAP code, a new technology code. And then if you could get an add-on payment, that can be very powerful. That's a long journey. So I'm not so sure it's just about the regulatory challenge. It's really about where are you in the journey to ultimately get reimbursement? How many studies do you need to do before you can prove that you're creating value for that patient or for a big population? Yeah. So I would agree. I want to build on that. I think in a lot of ways, it's very similar risk, but couch differently, right? So yes, you're not talking to the FDA, but you still have the onus of proving out that your technology is having an impact and an outcome, right? Whether it's on quality or cost. And unless you do that, there is no longevity of your product, right, or platform. And so sometimes people tend to think, well, oh, digital health is a little bit easier because your sales cycles are much quicker. You can sell one or two customers. And I think it's very deceiving because you might sell to one or two customers. That's not, they're not going to stay if you can't move the needle for them and deliver real ROI. You won't be able to sell to the big guys, the really big customers, until you show that ROI. So yep. ultimately, you, you have to do the same studies, just not in the context of the FDA. I do want to offer one thing. When you look at that 2021 period and some of the big deals, and you talk to the employers, and by the way, I might include diabetes here, they might say something like, we had to be customers. We just had to, because our costs are so high and the solution may help, right? I think 22, 23, and 24 will be do they help, right? But you got a huge influx of cash supporting these kind of companies. It's the new wave, but now there's also going to be, all right, what really works? And is this the next generation of approaches? I think as we move into more traditional settings, the bar has always been higher in terms of showing the proof points earlier before you get the massive funding sure. rounds. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of more traditional settings, let's transition a little bit into technologies that you might be interested in the next few years in in the hospital setting, in the OR setting, anything there? And also, how do you weigh that regulatory risk? You can We can wait on that, the regulatory bit, but what technologies are interesting to you in within the surgical space? Well, I mean, I think it's really a renaissance period for the OR, even just thinking about this particular panel and getting back online and looking at some of the technologies that are out there. I mean, they're very powerful. If I were a patient, I would want my surgeon using advanced imaging technologies. I would want to be in a surgical suite that understands what equipment to use, how to optimize workflow, which physicians have the best calls for my particular condition. So that's exactly what I would want. And we've seen funding in those areas, and I think that will continue. The challenge is the value demonstrations for many of these technologies aren't as easy to come by. So 
from a patient perspective, and I think from a surgeon perspective, a lot of these things seem like no-brainers. From a system perspective, I think there's still a, okay, for this particular procedure, if I invest 50, 100, 200 million dollars in my OR suite, are these outcomes gonna get better? Is my hospital gonna be ranked higher in its overall performance metrics? And there's only a few settings where you can really demonstrate that. There has been some in the stroke and neuro space. There has been some in the cardiology space. And I think that was a great analogy that Canary offered. I'm really excited about that. And my uncle really would have appreciated that technology at his knee two months ago, but there's still some work to do there. Yeah. I don't have anything there to offer. I think some of the data operability and workflow solutions are things that I'm very excited about. I think the key thing there is really kind of getting in seamless integration and really selling into hospital systems, which is not easy right now and in this current environment. And then the second is just broadly speaking, the transition of care out of the hospital is a broader theme that I'm very interested in, more focused on, more kind of not just rehab type of opportunities, but more acute, slightly acute care provision will be needed to balance. We look at a lot of traditional medical products, and, but we've been particularly focused on the pain space now, and hopefully it doesn't make me a bad person amongst all my orthopedic surgeons, <laughs> but the concept of being able to move lower, less invasive, lower cost, but effective therapies into the ASC for this patient population has been interesting. It's That space is growing really rapidly. And just like Greg mentioned, we also focus on workflow-associated products, whether that's a diagnostic or a health tech neighbor tool that I mean, we are spend the most money on healthcare and have the highest rate of healthcare-driven complications. It's the number two or number three cause of death in the United States, and our hospital readmissions are the worst in the world. Like we have, and it's all workflow-related, so we have a ton of work to do there. Do you think we can make that better? Yeah, but I mean, then you prompted, what about regulatory? I do think that within that, there is a category of re- regulatory-enabled, AI-powered technologies that studiers going to start to show who are the right patients for any given Absolutely. procedure. And some of them are going to get reimbursed. As investors, we have to figure out how many studies do they need to show and where are they in that life cycle. And if we can get ahead of it, that's great, but that's a little bit of a crystal ball. That's an exciting area. I think the surgical interoperability is a very powerful area as well. I think also adding to that, going back to patient navigation, as I mentioned earlier, just better routing of patient to different types of care and different sites of care. Yeah, last year during this event, I asked, we had a panel of uh, four orthopedic surgeons, orthopedic surgeon entrepreneurs, and at the very end, we asked, do you expect in the future there's going to be more surgery done? It's going to stay the same, or is it going to be less? And as you can imagine, the surgeon didn't really want to weigh in on that. So, <laughs> But it speaks to what you're talking about, proper patient selection. So. Now, we have several entrepreneurs in this audience who are wanting to know the secret sauce, getting invested. How does their technology get invested by a venture capitalist like you? So what just as we start wrapping up here, what are two or three critical things that you need to see for your fund to get interested in a particular technology. I'll turn it to Zach. I mean, we spend a time aligned with the basics, which is do you understand where the real problem is that you're addressing and do you... So focus, I mean, we're in the past couple of years, unfortunately, a lot of health tech companies that were throwing a lot of money tried to do too broad of an approach to their therapies and they may have great core techs, but they in today's environment, that's just not going to fly. So having that focus of like, what's my first market that I'm going to go to? And am I, what is the problem that I'm addressing? And how do I 
prove that I'm addressing that problem. To Greg's point, I kind of see the FDA and a lot of the health tech as a barrier to entry. If you don't go down the FDA path, you're still going to need to prove your clinical benefit to your pay if you go through the payer channel. And so the studies are proving that you do what you say you're going to do cheaper than everybody else is the barrier of entry in your business. So focus on that. And then capital efficiency is going to be the, the mantra of the day for the next couple of years until the economy gets going. So in addition to that, starting with the problem, I think it is so important versus starting with the technology. And it just kind of really drives me crazy when people say, I have AI for XY. No, kind of showcasing AI as the biggest value adder, as we all know, it's a tool, right? And so I think starting with the problem first, it really makes a difference. Also, be very clear about who's going to pay for that and what is the ROI that platform will deliver, right? And so we invest early stages, pre-seed, seed, and you have it's too early for them to have delivered that ROI, but having that understanding that this is the value we're going to deliver for an XYZ customer, and this is how we're going to get there, is very important. And of course, because we're early stage investors, the team plays a big role as source. Yeah. So use case, business model, differentiated technology, I think are entry stakes. The one trick question that I just would share is, we often say, who are you like? And many entrepreneurs don't want to be like anyone else because they want to be differentiated. But when you're not like anyone else, a venture capital doesn't know, a capitalist doesn't know what to compare you to. So I think it's good to have an answer. We're a lot like this, but better because. <laughs> and then we can go look that up and figure out what a premium to pay for your company. Or we're a mix of X, Y, and Z, right? So we combine many different aspects of a problem. That's great. So I do have two more questions, rapid fire questions. And then if whatever time we have got left, if you guys are open to any questions from the audience. So since this topic really is predicting the next two years of venture, can you just give me a quick answer of, are you optimistic? Are you guarded? Are you pessimistic about the next two years of venture investing? I'm guarded for 23, but optimistic for 24. Okay. I'm generally an optimistic person, so I would say I'm guarded optimist. Okay. <laughs> I think yeah, 20, 2020, this period of transition represents a great opportunity to get involved with a lot of maturing names that are in a period of lack of clarity. So finding the right investment partner and the right entrepreneur pair with a long-term thesis, I think this is the time for it. Last year was the year of the momentum play, and no one's really comfortable in that environment. So this is a good reset opportunity. Yeah. That's great. So I'm sorry I teased you. We really are up the last, but here's the last question. And I'm You'll have to catch these guys with your questions at, at the networking. Okay. Near-term prediction, Monday night. Georgia, TCU. <laughs> I have to say TCU because I'm from Texas and my mom went to TCU. Okay. So TCU. I'm a neutral party. <laughs> I know Georgia. How about that? Yeah, whoever's buying the beer. <laughs> well, Texans, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Texans, yeah, it's for sure. Although, didn't they, I think they canceled. There's no tailgating, right? Yeah, it is the Texas Christian University. So thank you to our venture panel. I'm going to call up our next speaker, but thank you, Greg. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Greg Gernberg from Longitudinal Capital, Zach Scott from Northwest Venture Partners, and Ruchita Sinha from AV8 Ventures, as well as our moderator, Nancy Lynch. The last episode will air next week, and you will hear from one of our sponsors, Doug Fairbanks from Advanced Scanners. 
He will talk on the impact of user experience on surgical enabling technologies. What they outlined is pretty mind-blowing, and we expect that they will have strong adoption in the MSK space. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023, when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.